Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We need to now be much more systematic about aggregating demand in the local markets because that is what enables the local conversation about these machines as the ones that everybody is talking about to be the way in which that transformation starts to occur. The way that I think about this is the Inflation Reduction Act is very, very powerful. And it effectively has created an electric bank account for every household in America. But now the work is making sure that American families know that they have that bank account and know how to access it. Hey, folks, have you come across the idea yet that we need to electrify everything? It's the idea that we need to replace gas appliances with electric ones and power those with renewable energy. It's a simple idea, really, and yet it's crucial to eliminating pollution, protecting the environment, saving a whole lot of money, and eliminating the illnesses caused by burning fossil fuels. The benefits are massive, but so is the complexity of decarbonizing billions upon billions of buildings. At the forefront of the movement to electrify everything is Rewiring America, an ambitious organization focused on the systemic change needed to make clean electric appliances the default. For this episode, I spoke with Rewiring America's CEO, Ari Matusiak. We spoke about their approach to systems change, the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act, their work to aggregate demand for electrification, and much, much more. I learned a ton and I'm excited to share this episode as there are many ways we can all help make the mantra, electrify everything, a reality. Enjoy. Ari Matusiak, welcome to Invest in Climate. So glad to have you here today. That's oh, wonderful being here. Thank you for having me. So Ari, we met a couple weeks ago at the Climate Salon, which was a gathering of, of pension, endowment, venture funds, and others. And there was a, a really fascinating conversation about galvanizing more investments in climate. Have you been to any other notable events uh, recently? Seems like event season is back in full swing. Event season is back in full swing, but most of the time event season ends up with me being at my desk and uh, dialing in to set events. So it was nice to actually get to be out in person with, with folks in the work. Great. Well, I've been following your work for a while and the work of Rewiring America. So I was excited to actually get to meet in person. And let's dive in because there's much to talk about. You are the CEO of an organization called Rewiring America. Tell us about the organization and what you're aiming to accomplish. Sure. Well, Rewiring America is the nonprofit organization that we founded in the summer 
of 2020 with um, a pretty simple goal, which is to electrify everything that we can in the economy as the main way of addressing the climate crisis, but also as, a, as the main way of generating economic renewal in our communities and in our households. The reason for that is pretty simple, which is to say that 42% of our energy-related emissions in this country come from decisions we make around our kitchen tables, what kind of cars we drive, how we heat the air and water in our homes, how we cook our food, and how we dry our clothes. And so as we think about all of those machines that we rely on, if we can systematically set about electrifying them, we will take out a material amount of emissions. And the good news about that strategy is that we don't need to wait on technology to be invented in order to do that. It's all here today. And in the doing of it, we will help households save a significant amount of money on their energy bills by our estimation, and the average national will be $1,800 a year, which is a material amount of money for families. So much in there that I want to unpack just in those first couple of minutes. You've already revealed all the secrets I was hoping our conversation would would gather, but there's there's a lot embedded in there. So let's dive in a bit more. So help us better understand, you know, why is it really so crucial that we electrify buildings in the United States? It's a great question. And I the way I would think about it is if we if you talk to someone who is climate interested, climate motivated, climate curious, climate adjacent, they will get, generally speaking, that what we're trying to do is to get off of the burning of fossil fuels. So, you know, and a lot of times the the image that is conjured is that of a power plant belching smoke into the atmosphere and all of the greenhouse gases that are related to that. Well, the power that is coming off of that power plant is going to the places that we live, the places that we work, the places where we play, the places where we pray, and into the machines that help us get in between all of those places, i.e. our cars, the buses that we take, etc. And so it really is about changing all of the machines from a fossil fuel baseline to an electric baseline or said simply making sure your house is filled with plugs and not pipes. Because so long as you have machines in your home that rely on pipes to generate their power, we will be dependent on fossil fuels. And so we need to systematically move all of the machines over and away from the pipes and onto and connected to the outlets and the plugs. And as we do that, what that does is it it decarbonizes our households or the and the machines, of course, that we rely on. But it also organizes the demand in the market so that the whole market is relying on electrons that can be powered by clean electricity and not dependent on fossil fuels for gas or for fuel oil or other sources of power. How much stuff is there that we actually need to electrify? I remember hearing that just 2% of buildings in California are electrified, and we're probably one of the more advanced states. And I think you've also mentioned that there's a billion machines that need to ultimately be transformed. So tell us about the scale of change that you're working to affect. It's true. Across our 121 million households, there are a billion machines that either need to be replaced or installed over the next 20 or so years. The reality is we don't need to 
while it might be nice to early retire all of those machines and do a wholesale swap set and get efficient electric machines everywhere and, and sort of call it a day, that's obviously not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen based on when these machines break and when they need to be replaced. So the natural lifespan of a furnace or a water heater or a cooktop or a dryer or a car, those lifespans are ones that we can all relate to because they result in purchase decisions that are pretty significant for us. And those purchasing decisions are the moments where we need to win the future and have that sort of efficient electric decision get made. Because conversely, if someone goes out and purchases a fossil fuel replacement for their fossil fuel machine that has just conked out, the result is locking in emissions really for another 10, 15, 20, even 25 years because of how long those machines last. And so every single time a water heater dies in America and in the world and is replaced with a fossil fuel machine, you know, there's like a little tear that we should shed because we lost an opportunity to electrify that water heater with an efficient electric heat pump. And that's really the intervention that we need to create. But it's not just an intervention, really. It's we need to set it up so that the market has as its default the efficient electric machine as the most affordable and convenient one to purchase and install. There's a lot of work that we need to do to make that happen precisely because the baseline that we're starting from, as you called out, is pretty low. The status quo today is not an efficient electric status quo. It is a fossil fuel status quo. And so that is the transformation that we need to achieve. It gets me a bit nervous, actually, when I think about the user experience for electrification, because as you said, most people aren't sitting around thinking about electrifying their homes, but instead they wait until something breaks. And in that moment, whether it's their water heater, their HVAC system, their stove, they've got an urgent need on their hands. They want to take a hot shower. They want to cook a meal. And you know, they might have some sense of, of the climate impact of their home or more likely not. But when they then make a call to a local appliance store or a contractor, they often want the quickest solution, the thing that gets them back into the groove of their life. And historically, dealing with rebates and incentives and new, less understood technology has slowed things down and contractors might not even bring up those new options to their customers. So. Is this a challenge that you're grappling with? Is, is this a real problem? And how are you thinking about it? It's a real opportunity, Jason. It's, uh, that's what we, uh, there we go. that we have to embrace. I think about it in a couple of ways. The first thing to say is that the more things you electrify in your life, the easier it is to electrify other things. If you get an EV as a, for instance, and you are going to charge that EV in your home, meaning you live in a single family home and you have the kind of the space in your garage or alongside your house to have a level two charger. Well, what is probably happening as a, in combination with the EV is first and foremost, the installation of the charger, but also potentially the installation of an upgraded breaker box to support the charging that is required uh, for your car and the associated wiring to take the breaker box and connect it to the outlet that's tied to the EV charger that is going to charge your car. So 
a number of things just happened there. A number of machines were effectively purchased that push a household onto an electrification path. So if you think about it, just sort of in this sort of like, that's a moment in time where you're doing something in your house. It would make a lot of sense at that moment in time for you also to install 240 volt outlets where your water heater and where your furnace are, and maybe your cooktop, but at the least your water heater and your furnace, not because you have to go get a heat pump today, but because you have an opportunity to reformat your home so that it can accommodate that heat pump when the water heater breaks. So now if you kind of then again, fast forward and say, well, my water heater has conked out and I really want to take a hot shower, you actually could receive a heat pump in exchange for your now defunct water heater because you've already done the sort of enabling work to prepare for the, for the heat pump to be installed. So part of what we need to do is condition and sort of associate the future electrification events to the ones that we're doing today. Um, That's one thing to say. And then the second thing to say is that there's, um, and there, by the way, and there are all all number of examples of that. If I get rooftop solar, that's an example where I can create extensibility. If I am just moving into my house for the first time, that's a moment where I could do a bunch of these things. But then the other thing to say is that this really is also about aggregating demand in local markets. And so the more people who are kind of in a locality saying, I would like something that is efficient and electric, well, the stronger a signal it sends to the contractor base to say, well, great. You know, a lot of people are asking me about these heat pumps. Maybe I should learn about how to install them. Um, And that creates an opportunity. Let's talk for a second just about the magnitude of what you're trying to do. And you know, one way to compare this is in a previous role, if I understand right, you were chief strategy officer at Renovate America, which was the largest residential renewable energy and financing platform in the US. And you helped finance billions of dollars of improvements across 150,000 homes. Now, the scale that you're aiming for is pretty much that number of homes on a weekly basis every week for 25 years, aiming for 120 million homes. So I'm curious, one, how are you grappling with the magnitude of that change that you're working for? In some ways, it's kind of thrilling that you are trying to be 100 times more impactful or more productive, but it also points to a, a need to work at a systemic level in a way that's different from going house to house or even state to state. So tell us about how you're thinking about the, the size of that challenge. The first thing that we settled on at rewiring was to say, we need to create conditions for market transformation. How do we do that? Well, one way to do that is to create incentives for the electric machine to effectively help create the market conversation that says, you know what, there's this thing out there. It's this efficient electric machine and you should take advantage of it because it's better for you and it's better for your community and it's better for the planet. And so to that end, we worked really hard on shaping the policy and the Inflation Reduction Act. And the Inflation Reduction Act, which was just recently passed into law and signed by President Biden, is the largest investment in climate in the history of the country, but it has at its core 
residential electrification as what it is trying to motivate forward and accomplish. Just one part of the system, systemic answer is to systemically invest in bringing down the cost of the machines. And that's what the Inflation Reduction Act does as a, as a catalyst to getting the market going. Relatedly, there are other components of that, like the invocation of the Defense Production Act alongside the Inflation Reduction Act, which effectively says that the manufacturing of these machines in the United States is a national security priority. And us owning our supply chain actually is another way in which we can bring down the cost of these machines for American consumers. So one part of the systemic response has been that, uh, which is just to incentivize the machines, create more of a demand curve and signal in the market as a way to sort of get that flywheel going. But we do need now to aggregate demand in a much more material and concentrated way in these local markets. We need to think about them as thousands of local markets around the country because the market is really defined by the drive time of a contractor in a van. So what is that? 30 miles radius, 50 miles radius, whatever they is, is reasonable for them as a geography for them to cover in a day. That is the market. And there are thousands of them around the country because it's a big country. And so we need to now be much more systematic about aggregating demand in the local markets, because that is what enables the the local conversation about these machines as the ones that everybody is talking about to be the way in which that transformation starts to occur. And what the way that I think about this is the Inflation Reduction Act is very, very powerful, and it effectively has created an electric bank account for every household in America. But now the work is making sure that American families know that they have that bank account and know how to access it. If they do that, they will send a signal to the, to the installers, the contractors, the manufacturers, the financiers, oh, these are things that people want. These are things that we need to make sure people are able to get. Let's unpack something that you said. You said that we need to be more systematic about aggregating local demand. And so folks might understand about bolstering demand through marketing or education or just creating new products that people want. Most people aren't, I think, considering or thinking about how do you aggregate local demand in a systematic way? What what does that actually look like? And who does it? Well, it's a role that we want to help play, but it's not just about what we do or any one entity does. It needs to be kind of sort of a collective approach. And that's a bit of the point. The roundabout way in which I came to this work is actually because I've had a fascination for a long time with the Victory Garden program in World War II. And I'm going to get the rough numbers wrong, but, but the general idea will be right, which is to say that during World War II, uh, we had a whole obvious wartime mobilization to support and build the bombers and the tanks and the bullets and all the rest. But we also were mindful of the fact that we needed to ensure we had sufficient food supply in the United States because our supply chains were at risk of being uh, disrupted. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture, through its extension offices in every county in the United States, there is an extension office for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, created a program where they got local residents to sign up 
get their seeds, get their sort of instruction manuals, and plant. And they planted in their backyards these little victory gardens. And there was so much participation in that program that in 1945, 40-some-odd percent of our agricultural production was via the Victory Garden program. It became so successful, in fact, that when they shut the program down, they were worried about food shortages (laughs) because there was so much of the production coming from people's backyards. And I think there is an analogy to the Victory Garden program for our time which is to say the Victory Garden program provided produce for the family too, right? They were able to like eat the lettuce and the tomatoes and the whatever, but it was also for a greater good. Um, here, there is a clear line benefit for electrification for well over 100 million, 110 million, 115 million households in the United States. They will save money on their energy bills if they are able to electrify. Not only that, they will get the associated health benefits of not burning fossil fuels in their home and breathing in those fumes. And they will get the shared benefit, as mentioned, of the sort of like the economic return that happens when a bunch of people now have more money in their wallets in the community. And you have also, of course, like the benefits of cleaner air and a better climate for all. So, I think there is a way in which we need to systematize connecting people to information about what they can do in their home and to think about that locally. Imagine if you had the mayor of a city, the local utility, the sports team, the local employers, the unions, all sharing information to their associated members in a community to make folks aware of what is available to them in their electric bank account and what they could do in their home. That educational moment and then neighbors talking to neighbors becomes a way in which we start aggregating local demand. And while it might sound a little sort of aspirational and utopic sounding, I don't think it's that far of a reach because effectively what we are talking about is an aligned set of self-interests. There's a community benefit that comes from people achieving and accessing something that is going to help them immediately today. And so it is about telling that story and connecting those dots that unlocks that activity, but also, again, therefore aggregates that local demand. And so it's a little bit of a kind of a systematic campaign approach and model as opposed to like a laissez-faire, we'll just see what the market does approach and model. That's fascinating. I love the comparison to Victory Gardens. That definitely does offer think, some encouragement. But what signs are you seeing in the real world that local demand is increasing, that people are paying attention, or that this is moving in the right direction? One thing to say is people are very aware that their bills are going up. And the winter fuels report just came out this past week from the Uh, Energy Information Administration of the U.S. government, which is, in essence, a data gathering entity that puts out information about the cost of fuels and what it means for American households. And the price of gas, uh, meaning natural gas, has doubled. The, you know, fuel oil has skyrocketed. People are paying potentially thousands of dollars this winter that they would not have had to pay if they were on efficient electric machines. And so I do think there is sort of a converging effect of 
realities that people are facing, you know, keep in mind that over 40% of the inflation that people are experiencing is tied to energy bills. And that is where that cost center and experience is coming from. And that creates an opening for a conversation about what people might do about it. There's a lot to see and a lot yet to play out in the months ahead and the years ahead, quite frankly. But the trend lines here are pretty powerful and they become self-reinforcing. Once somebody has the benefit of driving an EV for the equivalent of a dollar and six cents a gallon, if they were sort of filling up at the tank, as it were, as compared to $6.50 a gallon or $5.90 a gallon or whatever the number is, the odds are that they're not going to want to go back to that. And not only that, these machines, you know, here's like the sort of the sidebar note, these machines are actually also just better than the ones that they're replacing. An EV is just a better car than an internal combustion engine car. A heat pump is just a better product than a furnace. An induction cooktop is just a better stove than a gas stove. And so the good news here is that as people take on and adopt these technologies, they will say, well, I don't know, why didn't we do this sooner? And of course, the policy changes that you've mentioned are going to be big incentives and drivers, both for the innovation as well as the adoption. And let's talk about that for a minute. So the Inflation Reduction Act, first of all, congratulations and thank you for working on it and helping get it passed. Biggest uh, climate bill in US history. Tell us what will it mean for individual consumers uh, and homeowners as they think about retrofitting their homes or, or buying new equipment? First of all, we have a calculator for that. So you can go to rewiringamerica.org and find our calculator, where if you type in your information, your zip code and your income level and how many people are in your home, you will get the guide to how much money you would be eligible for in the Inflation Reduction Act and your electric bank account, as it were. Um, and what those programs are, and also information about the machines themselves. You know, like it's okay if one of your listeners or multiple of your listeners don't actually know what a heat pump is that we've been talking about this whole time because there's a description for that on the website. The upshot of the Inflation Reduction Act is there are rebates, tax credits, and low cost financing totaling, frankly, as much as $858 billion to support the financing of rooftop solar, battery storage, breaker boxes and wiring, EV chargers, EVs, heat pump water heaters, heat pump space heaters, induction cooktops, and heat pump dryers. Those are all the appliances that are covered through the Inflation Reduction Act. And depending on your sort of situation and circumstance, you might be eligible for rebates that total up to $14,000 to pay for up to 100% of the cost of these replacements, or tax credits that are of various sizes, depending on what measure you're looking at, that renew each and every year. So you can buy a heat pump space heater one year accessing tax credits and then the next year, get a heat pump water heater. These benefits are very powerful, and they are going to be there for a decade. So it's not also one of these, you have to rush right out and get one today, limited time only sort of situations. It is a decade-long window where the Inflation Reduction Act meets people where they are and when they're ready 
to make an investment. And beyond the individual level, what about more just the international level or the national level of what's the impact of such a big historic bill being passed? I remember that in your presentation, you said that there's a much cited number of $100 billion that'll get put into the market, but the actual number is something closer to $850 billion in terms of what could actually be offered to customers, consumers eventually. So please explain this exciting and seemingly magical $750 billion difference. The thing to say about this, and it like comes back again to this idea, the Inflation Reduction Act has made residential electrification, in our view, it's made it basically the hinge point of U.S. climate policy. And the reason for that is actually contained in the delta between the $100 billion number that you referenced and the $858 billion number. And that delta is really one of uptake. So what happens in a bill like the Inflation Reduction Act is an entity called the Congressional Budget Office comes along, they look at all the language in the legislation, and they say, okay, based on this provision and these incentive levels that for this duration of time, we anticipate this number of American households using this incentive, and then this number of households taking advantage of that incentive, and on and on and on and on. And that creates at the end a what's called a score for how much the bill is going to cost. And the score is the projection, basically, of the economic participation of the American public with respect to the policy that has just been sort of passed and approved. So the Congressional Budget Office, when they did their score, came up with $370 billion, give or take, for the entirety of the Inflation Reduction Act. Of which we think about 100 billion of that 370 is really in the residential electrification bucket. But here's the thing the tax credits that are in there are not capped. The low cost financing, much of it is like in effect not capped because it creates leverage in the private market. And so what happens over time is if you thought about it instead, of what the CBO says and said, well, what's the goal? The goal should be by the end of the 10-year window to have the market default be established so that every single time a machine breaks, it's replaced with an efficient electric machine or every single time a machine is installed, it is an efficient electric machine. If that was the goal line a decade from now and you ran sort of the curve backward, what you would say is, well, over that 10-year window to get to that point in time, the Inflation Reduction Act would end up spending closer to $860 billion than $100 billion. So it's not really magical, although it does feel sort of magical to say. It is really participatory. It's based on whether people sort of move forward, are educated, connect to their electric bank accounts, and use those dollars. And what about a follow-on effect? I know that shortly after the Inflation Reduction Act passed, that California came out with its own legislation that's aiming to accelerate adoption. Are you seeing that there's likewise in other states or even in other countries an impact from this policy that's, that's going to accelerate decarbonization? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in Europe right now, what we're seeing is a massive move toward electrification and the adoption and installation of heat pumps, obviously, in relationship to the crisis created by Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. 
around the world, we're seeing other countries step forward and start to put in place programs um, like the ones that are defined in the Inflation Reduction Act, and states across the country are starting to do same. And so what's going to end up happening is we're going to see, I think, a flywheel effect where there's going to be more and more velocity on the wheel as people become aware and start to take advantage of the benefits and those benefits become sort of more socially understood. And as that happens, it's just going to be true that there's going to become a bit of a race to accelerate adoption. And if you just sort of think about you know, in this way, EVs are a very useful analogy. If we had this conversation probably five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, and the question was asked about when um, EVs would become the clear winner in the market and everybody would declare that the EV is the car that is going to be the winning car, we might not have picked last year for that. Um, we might have imagined it to be further out. But really, effectively, last year, all of the car companies kind of came to the conclusion that they were going to be making EVs um, and transitioning over. The same phenomenon is going to happen across the board. It's just a question of how fast the flywheel gets going. And part of what we see our role as being is to get it going as fast as possible, as quickly as possible to accelerate that transformation. Ari. You've been describing a flywheel and the fact that you're working on a systems design issue. And I think you know, I work at IDEO and we've been saying that we're now in a moment when we need to redesign everything from products to organizations to systems. And so I'm really excited to hear more about the flywheel for the systemic change you're working on. We know the technology for electrification is here. It'll continue to improve with more technical innovation and that will accelerate things. You've described some policy wins that have been accelerants as well. But I'm curious, what else is accelerating that flywheel? And what are some of the biggest barriers that are creating resistance to the flywheel? Accelerants to the flywheel include the volatility of fossil fuel prices and the inflationary effect of fossil fuel prices. I think people are more aware poignantly of that today than they were a couple of years ago. The effect of electrifying the machines that we rely on is effective is for the most part is a locking in of price and a stability of price. Um, so there is a, a certainty that comes with your how much you are going to have to spend on your energy bill uh, month in and month out. That has never been true with fossil fuels. When I graduated from college, which was a little while ago now. I lived in a home that was heated with oil heat. And that winter, there was a price spike on the spot market for oil. And the result was I got a bill from the oil provider that was more expensive than my rent. And as somebody who was just graduated from college and making $22,500 a year, that was like an insurmountable shock to my budget. There was no way I could make that payment. And that is the dynamic that is just a truism for being sort of tied to dependent on fossil fuels. People are more aware of that. They want to get off that train. And that is an accelerant to making the transformation. I think there's more social awareness. And obviously, that is uh, in part tied to climate, but also other factors like health. 
more reporting about the health risks of burning fossil fuels in your home, cooking with gas in your kitchens, et cetera, and what that means for the asthma rate of kids and uh, just sort of the overall health incidence and impact that it can have. And so those are the kinds of that social transformation is happening where I think over time, burning fossil fuels in your home is going to be kind of like smoking. It's going to not be a good idea. But there are impediments. The impediments, some of them are related to just the default mode of our homes. If you think about them as operating systems, if you're running an operating system that is a fossil fuel operating system, you have inertia to overcome to be operating on a different operating system. And that that inertia is not immaterial and needs to be sort of um, deliberately overcome. The other thing to say is that there's also misinformation. I mean, this is like one of these things where you see that there are interests that are trying to make it such that people say, oh, no, I heard electrification is like a bad thing. Or, you know, this and that are going to happen if I, if I move forward and electrify the equipment in my home. Well, you know, that's to be expected a little bit because this, these things become politically contested. But those are barriers that we have to overcome. What about the influence that people have on buildings beyond their homes? Is rewiring America engaging people to advocate for local policy change or to accelerate electrification for schools, workplaces, and other buildings in their communities? This is a big part of what we're doing. So in addition to helping people understand what their own electrification plan can and should be, we're also developing playbooks and toolkits for communities to come together around this question. So one of the things that we're doing and we will be releasing um, in very short order is a bunch of campaign material to help communities for students and parents to electrify the schools in their communities. How would you go about doing that? How do you understand what is needed? How does how do you help a school district go forward and electrify all the things in their school buildings and on their and, and sort of associated to the school? We're going to do the same for small businesses. We're going to do the same for businesses that have where they are leaseholders in offices and want to be want to figure out how they can influence and educate their landlords to electrify. So ultimately, we think about it sort of holistically at the community level and how can we create as much of a local movement as possible to move people forward. The other aspect of that is going to be that we are going to create effectively a scorecard for your community, comparing it to others. Because in some communities, your electrification bank account will go further than it does in other communities. And that will be based on the policy prescriptions that are in place locally, how long it takes to get a permit, how much the permit costs. Those are the kinds of things that can add significant cost to a project and slow it down and make it less convenient. Again, these are sort of examples of how individuals can choose to participate in that conversation locally and say, well, how come I have to pay more than my neighbor does? to get the same thing. That doesn't seem to make sense. Um, I actually talked to a contractor a few years ago who told me a story about how he operated in a community where one side of a street was in one jurisdiction and the other side of the street was in another jurisdiction. And for he was a rooftop solar installer. And for the uh, one side of the street, 
it was a thousand dollars more expensive to get the same thing that I was on the other side of the street, simply because that jurisdiction's permitting requirements. And so we can expose that a bit and create a roadmap for communities to come together and ensure that the right outcomes are taking hold. Now, I love the comparison scorecard. I know that one of your co-founders came from O-Power, which leverages the power of comparing home utility bills to their neighbors to ultimately get them to save energy. So more on the local policy front, I've also seen that some cities are starting to ban gas appliances. Is that something you're working on and something you expect to see more of? I think we're going to see a range of things on that question. But we've seen it the other way too, by the way. We've seen states ban communities from banning gas appliances. Certainly, there are communities that are making sort of affirmative statements and commitments that there needs to be a hard transition date off of fossil fuels. I expect there will be more of those. And there will be political leaders and community leaders alike who are pushing hard for those changes. I don't think that will be the mode case in the United States, though. And I don't think the majority of communities are going to adopt those kinds of ordinances or enactments. So the good news is that regardless of that, if we educate households about the benefits that are available to them, what no community should be doing is preventing a household from making a choice that makes sense for them. And if the clear-cut winner in that as a choice is the, is the efficient electric machine, then that is what will end up winning in the market. And again, that's the transition that we're ultimately seeking to achieve. Whatever set of policies accelerate that is great, but we don't need to ultimately depend on one set of policies or another. We need to just effectuate the whole transition happening and have that flywheel accelerate as quickly as, as we can. I'm really curious to hear what you've learned about raising awareness and urgency to decarbonize the built environment. People are very aware of the climate impacts of their cars. Increasingly, they're aware of the impact of the food they eat. And yet, meanwhile, buildings emit 40% of our greenhouse gas pollution. They use 40% of our total energy. And yet, we walk in and out of buildings every day really, without thinking about the impact of the buildings on our planet. How do we change that? I mean, I think, first of all, we have to change the mindset where it has been historically that the answer on the buildings and, frankly, on the cars has been, we just need those places that we go to and those uh, cars that we drive. We just need them to be as efficient with the fossil fuels that they use as possible. Well, we can't efficiency our way to zero. And, you know, we've gone about as far as we can with that philosophy. Now it's really about electrifying all those machines um, because that's the only way to get to zero emissions. Also, it turns out that electric machines are multiple times more efficient than the fossil fuel machines that they're replacing because they don't have to deal with waste heat and all the things, the thermal losses that come with fossil fuel machines. So the benefit and opportunity for us is to kind of have our cake and eat it too on that one, where you can have an efficiency mindset, but use electrification as the way to tackle sort of the totality of the problem. But that is an educational move that needs to happen. And what gives me a lot of encouragement, though, is that people, once they are exposed to that information, it makes sense to them. 
and they start to think about how they can incorporate that transition in their own lives. And again, this is an example. It goes sort of in both directions. If you animate a student, a child, about what needs to happen in their school, and they start talking to their teachers and to their principals and to the administrators and the school board about electrifying their school, well, they are going to have a conversation when they come home with their parents about what kind of stuff they have in their house. It works in the other direction too. If a household is having a conversation about what to do in their home to get off of fossil fuels and the answer is electrifying everything, the child is going to take that to the school and that it becomes a potential point of engagement. The parent is going to take that to the workplace and that also becomes a potential point of engagement. And so this is really about once you educate someone about electrification and its power, it has multiple applications in their life that they can bring with them where they are educating others and mobilizing together to take collective and individual action, which is very powerful. But we have to get there. Uh, and that's the work to do. All right. You've really shared a compelling and exciting long-term vision for electrification and the systems change that needs to be made to get there. And so as a final question, I'd love to zoom in and hear what does the next year hold for Rewiring America? What's a milestone that you're working towards and how can our listeners help? Well, I think for us, a milestone, you know, what we're working toward over the next year is to really launch this national effort to connect American households to their to their electric bank accounts. We are also going to be working to make sure that the policy is implemented well in the Inflation Reduction Act so that it is easy and accessible to all American families. And we are going to create the tools for American households to find out what their own electrification plan is and how to plan their own future. What we need, though, are a bunch of electrification enthusiasts in every community in the country who are willing to kind of share with their neighbors, their families, their friends about the benefits of that and to partner with us in doing that. And we would love your listeners to be joining us in that work in the year ahead. Ari, thank you so much for being here today. We are wishing you well, wishing Rewiring America all the best of luck. We will definitely include links in the show notes and hope that folks check out the savings calculator and other resources on rewiringamerica.org. Thank you again, Ari. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.